We're going to continue in our series in Luke. The scripture is printed there in your bulletin. If you want to turn there and, and give ear, this is God's Word. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, "There, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in His day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who's on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go in to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked? He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This is God's word. Well, none of us want to miss out on something good, right? I mean, deep in the heart of all of us in our minds, there's this insecurity that flares up when we think we might be left out of something, right? You know what I'm talking about? Um, Do you know who today uh, from Harbor Downtown is throwing the most incredible Super Bowl party this afternoon? Did it work? How many of you are really upset now because you feel like you've been left out, right? Your plans aren't really that great anymore because there's this incredible party and you didn't get invited. You know, I mean, you feel that, right? Well, I just made that up. There, there is no party, at least not one that I know of. <laughs> Wait a second. Um, no, but, <laughs> but we have this feeling of being left out and... What we have here in the text this morning, we have two groups of people that have that same fear. They also are afraid that they're going to be left out. Okay, and far more than being left out of a Super Bowl party, they're concerned that they're going to be left out of the kingdom of God. Okay, now the kingdom of God is just shorthand for what God is doing in the world. Okay, so when Jesus talks about that, that's what he's referring to. Do you ever wonder about that? I mean, what is God doing in the world today? What is God doing here in San Diego? And are you a part of it? Are you included in what God is doing? Or are you being left out? This is the question that Jesus addresses in our text. And again, it's a conversation between Jesus, the Pharisees, and his disciples. And the concern on everyone's mind is that they're going to be left out of God's plans for their city and their world. And Jesus makes it really clear who's in 
and who's out. So these are the, these are the three points this morning. They're there in your bulletin. Jesus says, first, you won't see it. And then second, he says, you will see it. And then third, he says, you won't see it yet. Okay? So first, you won't see it. This is verses 20 to 22, and these are his words to the Pharisees. Now, we've said a lot about the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And so they come to Jesus, and they ask him, when will the kingdom come? Now, this sounds like an innocent question, right? I mean, probably something everybody was had on their mind. Everybody would have asked him, but let me help you understand the context here. Okay, this is three years into Jesus' ministry. This is the last month of his work in the world. Okay, and from the beginning of his work, Jesus has been saying over and over and over again, if you read through Luke, and you can catch the flow of this, it's amazing. Jesus, from the beginning, has been saying, this is the kingdom of God. I am the king. What I'm doing in healing people, what I'm doing with the words that I'm sharing, the truth that I'm bringing, this is heaven on earth. This is the reversal of what's wrong with the world. This is the power of God. What you see in me is the power of God fixing everything that's wrong. And this is the beginning of what will ultimately be the complete renovation and restoration of all things. And so they've seen Jesus exercising demons. They've seen him heal people who are sick. They've seen him feed people that he could never feed. They've seen him put on display power from God, and they've heard him connect that power to this message that this is what God is doing in the world. And they've rejected all of it. Time and time again, if you just look for references to the Pharisees, you see that these Pharisees, they've heard it before, they've seen it before, and yet they're asking him again. Again, they're asking, so uh, when's the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus' response is, look, guys, it's not coming in a way that you're ever going to recognize. You're, you're, just, you're never going to recognize it. You have blinded yourself up until this point, and you're going to continue to be blind until you see that the kingdom of God is standing right in front of you. That's what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is within you. You can also translate that phrase that the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's staring you in the face. And it has been for the last three years. This is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. And I think it's not just to them, but I think we also run the risk sometimes of being like the Pharisees in this. I mean, ask yourself, are you looking for what God is doing in the world? And can you see it or can you recognize it when you see it? Or are you ignorant? Or are you confused about what God's doing? The Pharisees were moralists, among other things. The Pharisees were people that thought, well, you need to do a certain number of good things. And if you do enough good things, then maybe God will accept you. And Jesus opposes moralists. Right? That's not the kingdom because we can never be good enough. No matter what the standard is, no matter whose standard, nobody ever, you can't match up to a standard of being good enough to be in God's kingdom. Most moralists have just this particular list of do's and don'ts. Some have lengthy lists like the Pharisees. Some have short lists. But the bottom line is that if you think that your do's or your don'ts are going to save you, you will be blind just like the Pharisees. 
you will miss what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees were also skeptics. Okay, and to skeptics, Jesus says, look, you need to be careful. Okay, Jesus was more welcoming than anybody. When people had questions, when people came to him, Jesus didn't drive anybody away. And so it's not wrong to be a skeptic in the sense of you're trying to learn and figure out what is Jesus doing in the world? What is his ministry about? What is the church doing trying to follow him? How does this all work? There's nothing wrong with that. But skeptics are constantly asking God for one more proof before they'll commit. Right? They're constantly saying, well, if this one other thing gets answered, I have one more question, and, yeah, and then they get the answer to the question, well, now there's something else that they... And that's kind of the route that skeptics can fall into. And Jesus is saying, look, just be careful. If you're really interested in finding out about me, then follow me, and you'll see if it's true. Being a skeptic sometimes can blind us just as much as being a moralist to what Jesus is doing. Now, the kingdom of God in its most general sense really is its life and how it should be. Okay, it's life the way God intended. That's, that's, what the, that's a good definition of the kingdom of God. And to ask ourselves today, well, what does the kingdom look like? I would say that the kingdom of God today is really people lining up with what God is doing in the world by connecting to Jesus first and foremost, because he is still leading the movement of what God is doing in the world. So you connect with Jesus and then you learn that it's really his power that enables you to become an agent of change. It's his power in you that makes you part of the solution to what's wrong with the world. Okay, and it's his power in you that fills you so that you can go into the world to transform your work, your culture, to show love and mercy to others. This is how God works in the world. He changes people and then he releases them. He sends them out to be light and salt. And so, really, this puts on us the question, we have to keep asking ourselves, how can we live in a way to help other people see that we are bringers of the kingdom of God? Does that make sense? What can we do? How can we live at work, right, in our offices, at home, in our neighborhoods, with our families? What are the things that we can do where if people were to look, they would say, well, gosh, I'm not really sure what heaven is going to be like. I don't really know what what it's all going to look like when God is finished fixing everything, but gosh, this really reminds me of that. This looks almost like a foretaste. You remember Bill McCurin from a few weeks ago, the, this is the licking of the spoon on the lemon icebox pie. <clears throat> That's what our lives need to be. And if you are not going to line up with Jesus in terms of what he's doing in the world and follow him and figure out what does he have to say about God's kingdom in the world, then you'll be like the Pharisees and you'll end up being blinded. You won't see the kingdom. And so after trying to help the Pharisees understand their blindness and get them to remove their blinders, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he tells them, look, don't worry, you will see it. Okay, and that's point two. You will see it. Now, the disciples have already begun to experience the kingdom of God, right? These are the same people that have been watching these miracles. They've been sensing the joy and the, I mean, just the, the wonder at who Jesus is. They're realizing that he is the Savior who's come to save the world. And many of them even have been able to do miracles in the name of Jesus, representing Jesus. 
And yet in these verses, Jesus is actually talking about something more. Okay, there's a specific event in the progress of the kingdom. And Jesus calls it the day of the Son of Man. Okay? And we see he uses this phrase four times in verses 22 to 37. It's in 22, 24, 26, and 30. Well, what does this mean, the days of the Son of Man? Well, I would say that this is a phrase that's loaded with Old Testament echoes. Okay? As I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what it's like? It's like a suitcase. Okay? On the, on the outside of the suitcase, it says the day of the Son of Man. And, you know, you're kind of lugging it around and you trip and fall and the suitcase opens. And if this suitcase opened, certain passages of the Old Testament would just spill out everywhere. Okay? You'd have passages from Isaiah, passages from Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. There are themes that are introduced in the Old Testament that Jesus then, it's kind of like if you go and look at all these different passages, it's like taking out the clothes that get strewn about. It's like when you understand these passages, you're folding them back up, you're putting them back in the suitcase, and you think, oh, okay, I really understand this. Okay, so to understand what Jesus is talking about here, you need an Old Testament background. And so I'm just going to look at two of the most important uh, passages that, G- that they pick up and explain what Jesus is referring to when he calls, when he refers to the days of the Son of Man. Okay, we're going to, uh, Ezekiel chapter 2, we're not going to look there, I'll just tell you about it. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel is the prophet in the Old Testament who's called the Son of Man. Ninety-three times in Ezekiel, he's called the Son of Man. He's called, it's 93 times throughout his prophecy. And chapter 2 shows that Ezekiel was called to be a prophet to proclaim judgment on rebellious Israel. Okay, Israel had again fallen short and God, using Ezekiel, pronounced judgment against her. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus in verses 22 to 37 is saying that he is coming to announce and bring judgment against Israel. Now in Daniel 7, verse 13, there's another, there's another passage that talks about the Son of Man and it's it's very important. In that passage, it says that Daniel saw this vision, and it says that one like a son of man approaches the throne of God. He receives a kingdom that will last forever, and then he turns and judges and destroys the, the enemy power that is oppressing his people. Okay, if you read Daniel 7, 13 and 14, you'll see that. And so Jesus is actually saying, look, this prophecy in Daniel that refers to the Son of Man, it applies to me. I am coming. Jesus is saying to Daniel that what Daniel saw, he is living out. That Jesus is going to receive a kingdom and he is going to bring judgment against his enemies. Now, what's scary for the people that heard Jesus say this was that all the people in Israel that day, they all knew who the enemy was. Right? The enemy for Israel at that time was, was Rome. Right? This kingdom that was dominating them and keeping them from being able to worship the way they wanted to and keep them free. They had to pay taxes. And, and Rome was oppressing Israel. What's scary about this passage is that Jesus makes it clear that the real enemies are Israel itself. The, the judgment that's going to come, it's not going to come first on Rome. It's going to land first on Israel. 
And it's because Israel is being led by the people who are blinded to his kingdom. The Pharisees and the other religious leaders of Jesus' day were telling people that Jesus was not the Messiah. They were telling him this is not the kingdom of God. They were opposing Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring judgment against Jerusalem. I'm coming to bring judgment against these folks who are oppressing me and opposing God's kingdom. Jesus makes it clear, and the rest of Luke shows this, that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded and both the city and the temple will be destroyed. Now, there are lots of different interpretations of this passage, and so if you have questions, we'll, you know, please come to the Q&A time. We can deal with some of those. But the point that Jesus is making when he says the days of the Son of Man is he's saying that he is coming in judgment. Okay, he's coming in judgment. And when he comes, verse 26 says it'll be just like the days of Noah. People were living unsuspecting, normal lives right up to the point where everyone was destroyed. It's just like the days of Lot in verse 28. People will be living their lives and many will be pursuing wickedness, thinking that there's no, there's no punishment, there's no retribution, there's no judgment that's going to come. And the day that Lot left, judgment came down. And again, this is exactly what happened in 70 A.D., the Roman army came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And this isn't unfamiliar for folks that would have understood the Old Testament. Just in the same exact way that God brought Babylon, a pagan nation, to come and conquer Israel in the Old Testament, so God is going to bring the Roman army and conquer Israel in the New Testament. So Jesus announces that this is coming, and so... What's the point? Why does he tell them this? He's not just telling them so that they'll be informed, but he's telling them because he wants them to know exactly what to do when the Roman armies come. And his answer is really clear. Run. Run. And run away fast. That's what the Israelites are to do. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to have time to escape, but only just barely. And Jesus makes it clear. He says, don't worry about your stuff. And he brings up Lot's wife. Lot's wife, remember when she left with Lot to flee Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot's wife sort of turned around. I think we can understand that she turned around because she wanted to go back. Or maybe she wanted to go get some of her stuff to bring it out with her. And she was destroyed. She was destroyed. And she got caught up in the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jesus is saying, look, don't go get your stuff. Just run. Wherever you are, when you see them come, run. Run. If you don't, if you go back for your money, if you go back for your things, you will get caught in the judgment, and it will be ugly. It will be ugly. And this makes verse 33, I think, really clear. You know, where Jesus says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. It really does make sense. What Jesus is saying is, look, if you try to preserve your livelihood... Right? If you go back for your stuff, you're going to get caught in the judgment and you're going to die. But if you forsake your stuff and run for the hills, you will be saved. You will, you, you will live. You'll keep your life. Now, there's been a lot said about verses 34 and 35. Okay, this phrase that one's taken and one is left. But it becomes really clear what Jesus is referring to when you understand the context of Jesus and his disciples. What he's saying is, look, when the Roman army comes to destroy Jerusalem, 
Two people will be in bed that night. One will be taken and the other will be left. What do you think that means? What do armies do when they come in to conquer a city? They do two things. They capture people and make them slaves. So they take some for slaves and then they kill the rest. On that night, two will be in bed, one will be taken captive, and the other will be left for dead. I mean, this is why the disciples say in verse 37, where, and he says, well, wherever the dead body is, that's where you're going to find the army. It's going to be in Jerusalem. And so this doesn't have anything to do with God snatching up one person to heaven but leaving the other. I mean, this is, Jesus was talking about real events that took place within his generation. Now, I think it's fair to ask, what does all this have to do with us? Right? If these were promises and predictions that Jesus was making and advice he was giving to his disciples in, you know, in about 35 AD, I mean, we're 2,000 years removed from that, right? What does this have to do with us? Well, let me tell you how this would have applied to Jesus' disciples, and I think you'll understand more how this uh, ends up bringing something that's comforting to us. When the time came, and you can read about this, the, the history of, I mean, it's been written, Josephus has a great accounting of the history of Rome when they came in and destroyed Jerusalem. But when this happened, Jesus' disciples were tempted to think that life was falling apart that everything had gone wrong, that Jesus' plans to bring his kingdom and reign from heaven and, and, and that the world was going to change. Well, all of a sudden you have this Roman army is coming and it's really clear what they do. They're going to destroy everything. And so the disciples would have been afraid. They would have thought life was falling apart and the disciples literally had to leave everything in the city when they ran. Think about that. They were left. They had to run away trusting that something that Jesus said almost 40 years ago, right? Something Jesus said almost 40 years ago was the right thing to do. And so they put everything that they had, their lives, the lives of their families, into the words of Jesus. They trusted him. And guess what? They were vindicated. They actually survived. Those who fled were saved while those who stayed behind were destroyed. And so to us this morning, this passage is saying Jesus' promises to you are trustworthy. Even if he makes you a promise today that isn't going to come true for 40 years, even if he's made a promise to you that you've been waiting 39 years for it to come true, you can trust in his promises when you read the scriptures, when you feast on the promises that come from God and from our Savior, you can know that they are true. They saved people from destruction 2,000 years ago. And the history of the church has demonstrated for the last 2,000 years, God's people, people who trusted in Jesus' promises, who clung to their promises, have been seen through trials, ordeals, challenges, hard times. And what's amazing is that when you cling to the promises of God, when you trust in his promises that he'll never leave you and forsake you, that he'll always work everything out, even the worst stuff out for good. When you trust those promises, you don't just get through the hard times, but you actually build 
the kingdom of God in those hard times. When we talk about what God is doing in the world, one of the things he's doing is he's putting on display his power in the midst of the lives of people who are suffering and still cling to his promises. Now, there's one last point the text makes that we need to look at. It's vital to our understanding of the kingdom of God and how it applies to us because it shows us a window into the very heart of Jesus. Okay? Jesus does tell his disciples that they will see the kingdom. They will see this day coming of the Son of Man when Israel is finally destroyed and the people that oppose God are destroyed and judged. They will see that day, but point number three, you won't see it yet. You won't see it yet. There's a gap between the beginning of the kingdom of God and Jesus bringing judgment against Israel in 70 AD. Okay, there's almost 40 years between the ministry and between the destruction of Jerusalem. And many of his disciples just didn't understand this gap, right? So many of them, you see this in the, as, you read, as you read on, so many people thought that Jesus was going to get to Jerusalem and he was just going to reign. He was going to take charge. He was going to clean out the temple. He was going to restore order. And he was going to rule from Jerusalem. So many people thought that. And Jesus has to remind the disciples in this passage, look, it just can't happen that way. It can't happen that way. Jesus can't just go to Jerusalem, declare victory, and then usher in judgment. Why? Think about it. Why? Why can't Jesus go and just clean house? Verse 25 tells us, Jesus tells the disciples, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus knew what was waiting for him. He knew what was coming in Jerusalem. He knew he'd be rejected, he'd be tortured, crucified, and killed. So why'd he do it? Why did he go? He went because his mission was to save people. His mission was to bring deliverance. And it wasn't just deliverance from the evil of people that opposed God's ways. Jesus needed to go and to do battle. He needed to deal with the evil that was behind his enemies. He needed to deal with the evil that was even in the hearts of his followers. Right? Who were hopelessly imperfect. This evil that was so powerful that it blinded Jesus' own people from recognizing who he was. And it's the power of sin and selfishness. It's the power that blinds us, that makes us look only at ourselves, that makes us think that we are the most important thing in the world. It's the, it's the power that makes us think that, well, the way that we would do the kingdom is how God should do the kingdom. Right? It's that power that it, just, it blinds us. And so Jesus needs to deal with that. Jesus knew that when he went to the cross, he knew that in his death, he was going to take that power onto himself and he was going to destroy it. Amen. He was going to destroy the power of death. He was going to bring an end to the reign of sin in the lives of his people. And so he had to go. And so what we see here is that while Jesus is trying to rescue his disciples, while he's rescuing his people, he's committing himself not to be rescued. 
He's saying, I am going so that you don't have to. I am going to endure this judgment so that I can set you free, so that you can be transformed to change the world. And then the second thing that Jesus does, and this just, this is utterly mind-blowing to me. Not only does Jesus want to save his people, and that's why he's going to the cross, but second, Jesus wants to reach his enemies and give them another chance to be rescued. Think about that. Forty years between the time of his death and the coming in judgment, an entire generation. And Jesus spent those 40 years pleading with the very same people that crucified him and trying to welcome them back, trying to get them to take off their blinders and see that they've just missed it. They've missed what God is doing in the world. They've missed that the kingdom isn't about what you do or being a good enough person. It's not about being the right kind of person. It's, it's about sinful people like us. It's about broken people finding healing. It's about sick people being made well. It's about the defenseless having somebody come underneath them and lift them up. It's about the wrong kind of people getting loved on. That's the kingdom. And so Jesus spent 40 years. Jesus is unlike anybody else in history, any other critic, any other judge, any other conqueror. How many people have you ever seen who judge someone, who declare judgment on them and then say, wait a second, before you have to experience this judgment, I'm going to take your judgment on myself. I'm going to experience your judgment so that if you would just see, if you would just open your eyes and see that this is God at work here, that you could be free from even what's to come. Amen and amen. I mean, this is our Savior. This is the kingdom that he brings. How do we live this out? What, what do we need to be doing here in this world? In San Diego, what do we need to show our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers? In what ways can we live where we can love folks and share with them that there is another way? That God is working in the city and he's working through people. How can we show people love and grace and mercy? This same Jesus who spent 40 years pleading with people, the people who killed him, to repent and come back to him and to realize that they were opposing God and to find freedom and forgiveness. I mean, are you kidding me? The people that crucified him and his church is saying, I, I just, doesn't that, think about that for a second. In Acts chapter 2, when the apostles stand up and begin to preach, right? They do a really good job of telling the Jewish people there, look, you crucified him. It was you. You rejected him. You didn't realize he was the Messiah. And you crucified him. You did this. You gave him up. You gave him to the hands of the Romans. You turned him in. You betrayed him. You turned your back on him. And then these people say, oh, my goodness, we finally see this. What do we do? I mean, how many of us would have said just... Go to hell. And yet Peter says, you know, if you repent, if you come to God and tell him that you're sorry, he will forgive you. And not only forgive you, he will make you a son or a daughter of the king. 
this is the king that we serve. This is his kingdom. And he gives us, I mean, he's making that same invitation this morning. If you're sitting on the fence, if you're a skeptic or if you're a moralist, Jesus is saying, look, see that it's me. That I'm the kingdom. I am bringing this kingdom. Come and be part of this kingdom. And I will fill you with more blessings than you've ever known. I will give you a peace that passes understanding. I will fill you with power. And I will send you then to change the world. Boy, this is our privilege to follow the king who serves in his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being a king that that is so different from anything else that we experience. Thank you for being a leader that serves. I, I don't understand your grace. I can't even scratch the surface of your grace and your forgiveness. But I'm so thankful for it. Thank you that we here are part of your kingdom. That we are the people that you are saving so that we can help share this wonderful salvation with others. God, ignite a fire in us. Give us this vision for how we might be able to change the world by sharing your love, your grace, and your mercy. We pray this because we want to see your kingdom come and your will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.